Uh, we are in the book of? Okay. Today we're going to get uh, one of those wonderful insights that, that Luke sort of drops in that sort of just open things up. He's going to introduce to us a couple of words that are not words that we use every day. The words are Hebrews and Hellenists. And it turns out this is actually, uh, Luke is not doing this by accident. Luke is introducing us, it's like the top of an iceberg, okay? Uh, by using those two names, he's actually introducing us to a much bigger issue. It is the issue in the book of Acts. It is the issue that's going to drive the book of Acts. It is the issue that's going to unlock the ministry of the Apostle Paul and explain why Paul had so much opposition and why people followed him around all over the, the Mediterranean Empire uh, attacking him and attacking his ministry. So we're going to take a little extra time to do that. Now we begin with uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And one of the major themes of the book of Acts is walls coming down. Barriers coming down. So in Acts chapter 2, what's the wall that comes down? Language. Yeah, language. Uh, the message is proclaimed. Everybody hears it in their own, on their own language. It's not the gift of tongues. As we see in Corinthians, this is the gift of listening, the gift of hearing, because everybody hears in their own language. So we begin in Acts chapter 2 at the epicenter. And it's almost like an, an earthquake. You have an epicenter and everything just kind of rotates out from that. Chapter 2 is the epicenter. It's the center of the earthquake. And there for the first time, walls that have existed since the Tower of Babel story, the narrative says those walls go down. Then we begin to see these, wall, these uh, walls rippling out. Uh, they're falling of it. The next thing we see is we've got a guy literally on the doorsteps of the temple. But he can't go in. Do you remember why? So he's lame. He's a cripple. And according to Leviticus, according to Torah, according to the Jewish law, you cannot enter the actual temple compound itself unless you are without blemish. So just as a, a sheep or a ram would be offered without blemish, so those so anybody has an infirmity he's kept out well the the ripples go over him and guess what where does he go right into the temple with john and with peter chapters four and five we're going to skip over because we simply cannot get to everything in the time frame we've got but just quickly uh what luke turns to in these two chapters is about the fact that the movement the jesus movements too early to call it christian but the jesus movement faces opposition the Jesus movement is a movement within Judaism at this point, and it's opposed, supported by some, but it's opposed by some others. So we got an opposition between Jews who believe in Jesus, who accept him as the Messiah, and Jews who do not. So this is what you call an internecine conflict. It's an in-house kind of conflict. Now, during this entire period, Luke will keep dropping these little hints in. I think it four or five times in these chapters. He keeps reminding us that all of this activity is happening where? In Jerusalem, up on the Temple Mount, inside the Temple compound. Now sometimes it's actually in the Temple itself, sometimes it's just in the, the larger area. He keeps telling us that the disciples meet at Solomon's portico. Do you remember where that was? Uh, it's a structure. If you've ever been to Jerusalem and they, you know, they recently ex excavated the steps here, and you can actually walk up there right above that Solomon's portico. So if you want to know where was the first ever Christian, no, Jesus movement building, church building. Where was the first church building? 
there it is. It's Solomon's portico because for at least months, if not years, more likely for years, Christians would meet in, in homes to break bread. Those are small groups. But where would they gather as a community? Remember Luke said there was how many Christians early on? 120 before Pentecost. Pentecost, we add how many more? 3,000, just like our church. Not everybody's going to be there every week. But where's the central point? They can all gather together, okay? Solomon's portico. And it's interesting that Luke says that over and over and over. He wants us to understand that. Chapter 6, the camera pans. And now we're going to look at a different issue. And it's, it's a critical issue. It's the issue in the book of Acts. He wants to turn to the fact that there is from day one almost, from the very, very beginning, the earliest church, there is profound conflict. Things ain't changed much, have they? You know, uh, uh, we fuss and feud over lots of things. But even as far back as we can go, there was at least two groups of Christians, of Jesus followers, who had tensions with each other. Uh, it is so significant that this conflict is actually what drives the book of Acts. Uh, and it's going to become the focal point of Paul's ministry. Uh, it is the source of controversy. This is why, according to Paul, and he tells us this in his, his letters, we also find it in Acts, as Paul goes around the Mediterranean, we know what happens at Philippi, it happens at Corinth, uh, we don't know about Ephesus, but it happens at Thessaloniki, and it happens um, in one other place. Behind Paul, there are the brothers from Jerusalem. And they basically follow Paul around saying, Paul's just full of it. Nothing Paul says is true. He's fundamentally perverted the faith. And these brothers are sent from Jerusalem. And these brothers are what we would call, in this part of Acts, the Hebrews. They do not like Paul. They do not like what he's doing. They want to undermine him. We also get to introduce the two of the most remarkable people in the early Christian movement, Stephen. Now, what stands out to you about Stephen? First Christian martyr, okay? Uh, he's remembered for that, although the longest speech in the book of Acts is on the lips of Stephen. And it is a gold mine. And it is incendiary. It's not surprising that after this speech, he is actually stoned. Another guy, Philip. Remember him, what he did? First guy to take the faith outside Jerusalem. Took it to Samaria. First guy to take the faith to a non-Jew, the Ethiopian eunuch. Breaking all kinds of ground here at this point. Uh, we are also, and by the way, these two, Stephen and Philip, are what? They're Hellenists. Other well-known Hellenists would include the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and Titus and uh, as a matter of fact the, the Hellenists are the key to the early Christian movement they're the ones that are going to make all these incredible advances you and I are here today as Christians because of the Hellenists they are the bridge outside Judaism from which Christianity will launch so they're hugely important we're also introduced to the group that they belong to the Hellenists as, as, a, as a group uh, the Hellenists are not only one of the most remarkable groups, and it's interesting that, I know growing up we didn't really talk about this, but today you can actually buy many books that have been written by scholars in the last 40 years because what, what's been realized is the Hellenists are the key. They are the key. And that Hellenistic church at Antioch is the key. 
if you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand how we started as a movement within Judaism, but then we launched into the world stage as a worldwide movement, the key is the Hellenists. They are the bridge. They're the ones that make this happen. Uh, by the way, it's not the 12 apostles. It is not them. They, for the most part, hunker down in Jerusalem. Some, like Peter, don't, but for the most part, they hunker down there. They produce the critical new developments. They are the first to take the gospel to the non-Jew, to the Gentile. They are the first to say to the Gentile, you can be a believer in Jesus, and guess what? You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to observe all the Torah regulations, thereby opening the door for those who might want to worship the God of Israel but necessarily did not want to become Jews themselves. Uh, they set the direction for the movement. So we begin Acts 6, the first seven verses with this. Now during those days, and, and we are at this point talking probably within weeks of Pentecost, okay? Uh, at most, maybe a couple months. So we're at the very, very beginning. During those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists had a gripe against the Hebrews. So we have this, this, this conflict. Why? Because their widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. We give food to the Hebrew widows. We don't give food to the Hellenist widows. Is that an issue? It is an issue. And the 12 called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, does that strike you as a little catty? <laughs> it is. It's a little bit of a put down, you know. Um, clearly, which of the two jobs is the most important, according to them? And which is secondary? By the way, the word for the second one, do you know what the word we use today for the second group? Deacons. Diaconi. This whole thing is where we get the word deacon from. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves. You do it. You choose seven men. Don't know why they couldn't have selected women, but they didn't. Good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint. So who's, even though the, the uh, Hellenists get to choose, who has the power and the authority? The Hebrews, the 12. Uh, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer, and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, so they chose first out of the chute, Stephen. And it's not accidental that they choose him. He's a man full of faith. He is full of the Holy Spirit. And they also choose this guy, Philip. Now we're going to choose seven, but we only have stories about two of them in the book of Acts. We have stories about Stephen. We have stories about Philip. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmaeus, and Nicholas, who happens to be, what's a proselyte? A convert. A Gentile, non-Jew, who has actually become a Jew. That's a proselyte. Um, which means the other six were Jews. They just happened to be Hellenistic Jews. And by the way, you can also tell this by their names, which are all Greek. And Nicholas is from Antioch significant church this is the home church of Barnabas 
This is where Paul will come to when he leaves Tarsus and goes there. This is the church that will launch the first systematic mission to the non-Jew. We call it Paul's first missionary journey. It is the home base for Paul for about a third of his life. Antioch is just not any church. They had these men standing before the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. By the way, in confirmation, what is it we do? Ordination, what is it we do? This goes in ancient tradition, the laying on the hands, the passing on of the tradition. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. Now we have at least 3,000. Although that day 3,000 were converted. Now, if you remember Acts chapter 2, it says they had come from all over the Roman Empire. Pretty good chance some of them went home, I'm thinking. So we don't know how many are there, but the numbers are increasing in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's a surprise. Do you remember who was the center of opposition to Jesus? The priests. And who is going to be the center in Jerusalem of opposition to the church? The priests. And yet, no. Uh, you'll see the term in the Gospels, the chief priests. It's sort of an oligarchy from which, uh, it's a group of families from which the, the high priest, but the priests basically run things. The Pharisees are actually a lay movement. Sadducees are families associated with the priests. Pharisees are kind of a lay group. Out of the Pharisees, the later rabbis of Judaism will come. But no, that's, a, that's an excellent question. But this is the people who run the temple. These are the leaders of the official Judaism. That some of them, no, not some, a great many of them would become believers is very significant. Now, Luke admits, and this is not characteristic of Luke. Luke loves to whitewash conflict, okay? Uh, Luke will skip over the incident in Antioch, which I think is probably maybe even more significant than the Council of Jerusalem. He just doesn't mention it. If it wasn't for, for Galatians, we wouldn't even know about it. Um, Luke sort of downplays Luke. The image that Luke wants to project is we're all just one happy family. And we go, it's significant then that at this point, Luke stops and says, by the way, conflict. There's a major conflict here. So there's serious dis discord here. All is not perfect. And we have factions and we have divisions. One group is running the show. These are the Hebrews. The other group feels slighted. These are the Hellenists. Now the Hebrews, who are they? Well, Hebrew is a term that's being used for a Hebrew speaker. And these would be Palestinian Jews. Jews of Palestine. They would, they would be speaking Hebrew or a, an advanced form of Hebrew, actually Persian, called Aramaic. Um, the original 12 disciples, what would they have been? Hebrews or Hellenists? They would have been Hebrews, okay, from up in Galilee. Maybe not all of them. We'll look at that in a second. Uh, Luke makes it plain. The Hebrews, including the 12, the apostles, are in charge of the church in Jerusalem. So they're running things. The Hellenists, probably more recent converts. Do you remember when they were likely to have been converted? Acts 2, Pentecost story. People from all over the empire have gathered Many of them were converted at that time. Uh, at this point, we're probably just a few days or a few weeks beyond that. The Hellenists 
accused the Hebrews of failing to take care of the widows. Uh, their widows are not being fed, which is a bit of issue. Uh, but the Hebrews, it appears, take care of their own widows. So there's a profound injustice here. Now, just for a second, what's the backstory? Because there is a backstory here. There's a lot going on. Uh, again, the image of, of an iceberg is, is really good. There's this surface issue of the widows. Widows aren't the real issue. There's a more profound issue here, and it just happens to surface in the issue of the widows. Uh, and why does uh, Luke suddenly, and he talks about they all hold everything in common, their finances together, they're all in harmony. Why does he stop the story to suddenly say, oh, and by the way, there was this one exception with the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Well, Luke's doing something very important. Luke makes no attempt to gloss it over. In fact, he raises it up and sort of shines the light on it where we can, uh, where we can see what's going on. Uh, time frame, we don't know, but best guess is we're probably just days or a few weeks after Pentecost. So this is probably still in the year 30 AD, the same year Jesus is crucified. Is still very near the beginning. Uh, and so this tension apparently goes back to the very beginning. The only clue that, that Luke's going to give us is the two terms. But the two terms are, are pretty much, at least for this world, self-explanatory. They carry a lot of meaning. They basically have to do with language. If you're a Hebrew, what do you think you speak? If you're a Hellenist, by the way, what does the word Helen, Hellenist mean? Remember? It's Greek for Greek. Okay, so that what the terms tell you, Hellas is, is Greece. Uh, so what the language tells you is, is that at base, we have at least a language difference. Two groups speaking two languages. Now, that has never in the history of the world ever resulted in a lack of communication and conflict, has it? You know, same thing is true here. Uh, one group, the Hebrews, they're going to identify themselves by their Palestinian heritage. Now, remember when we were looking at the book of Daniel? And there was kind of two groups, by the way, and then this, this conflict goes back to the time of Daniel. You've got a group who want to absorb the Greco-Roman Empire. They want to absorb Greek culture. They want to become more like everybody else. And there's a group that oppose that. Well, guess which group opposes it? The Hebrews. And so they manifest themselves here. Another group is much more cosmopolitan. Again, they're much more in line with the Greco-Roman world. Both are devout Jews. Okay? They're, they're, it's not one's more devout than the other. They're both devout Jews, but there are clear differences, and their differences run much deeper than the language. Uh, they do have their own language, but by the way, one group lives, breathes, eats, sleeps in the world of Palestinian Judaism. The other group eat, sleep, breathe, lives in the world of the Greco-Roman Empire. So it's very, very, very different. It's more than the difference between East Texas and Dallas. So I'm just saying a lot, okay. They each have their own Bible. The Hebrews have the Hebrew Bible, which is still today the Bible that Jews use. The, the Hellenists do not use that Bible. Do you remember what Bible they use? Septuagint. Third century B.C., translated from Hebrew into Greek. It's not the same. And there's some profound differences. Synagogues. Now, if you've got Greek speakers and you've got Hebrew speakers, and by the way, the evidence indicates that very few Jews who lived outside Palestine spoke or understood any Hebrew or Aramaic. 
if you put them into all one synagogue, what do you have? I can't understand. So if you're a Hebrew, you go to a Hebrew synagogue. If you're a Hellenist, you go to a Hellenist synagogue. Matter of fact, we've discovered ruins of five Hellenistic synagogues in the city of Jerusalem from the first century, one of which Luke happens to mention, and he mentions this chapter. Their own leaders. Who are the leaders of the Hebrews? The twelve. Who are the leaders of the Hellenists going to be? Stephen, Philip, and the seven. It's establishing itself. The Hellenists are diaspora Jews, many of whom have returned to Jerusalem. They have lived their life away. Uh, but at the end of their life, where if you're a Jew, where do you want to be? Where do you want to die? Where do you want to be buried? And so the book of Acts chapter 2 in that story tells us that. Uh, they want to come back to the temple. So in the part of the Pentecost story is, now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven, not visiting, living. They've come home. They've come to their spiritual home to live there. Uh, Hellenistic Jews have their own synagogues. Luke even mentions the one called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And we know what this is. Uh, 64 B.C. Remember Pompey the Great? Pompey Magus? Comes in, settles a little Jewish civil war, and just annexes Palestine. It's the Roman way, you know. Uh, comes into the temple and all that. He hauls off into captivity thousands and thousands of Jewish prisoners. They're then sold into slavery all over the empire. But we actually have records that survive of this. Slavery was not like slavery in the south of the United States. Often it was for a number of years and then you were set free. And then if you've been a slave and then you've been set free at the end of your work, what are you then? A freedman. So among these people who are coming back to Palestine, coming back to Jerusalem, are probably the descendants of people carried into slavery. And they're, you know, maybe their parents were freed or they were freed. Anyway, they've now come home to their spiritual home. So Acts 68. Then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, by the way, we actually have a piece of a, uh, archaeological find that, that uh, sort of backs this up. Cyrenians, Alexandrians. We know where Alexandria is, right? Yeah, Egypt. Where's Cyrene? Remember Simon of Cyrene? Today we would call that Libya. So these are, this is all North Africa. Others from Cilicia. Cilicia is a Roman area of which Tarsus, which Paul is from. And I couldn't find out if Antioch is there. Antioch is right close to the border, if not. Asia, which today we would call Turkey, because that's sort of the east end of that and a little bit beyond that. Uh, archaeologists have found five Hellenistic synagogues in Jerusalem. One contains a very, very famous uh, uh, inscription, the Theodotus inscription. This is written in Greek, and this is what it says. Theodosius, by the way, God lover, that's what it means, son of Vitilius, priest. He's a priest. He's a Jewish priest. Arch synagogos. Anybody look that up lately? <laughs> if you're arch, what are you? Top, top. He's boss. He's president of the synagogue. So he's a priest, he's president of the synagogue. Built this synagogue. Why? For the reading of the law. The teaching of commandments is, by the way, one of the earliest inscriptions we ever have anywhere of what a synagogue was really existed for. And the guest room of the upper chambers and the installations of water, showers, toilets, 
for hosting those who have come from abroad who need them. Motel 6. <laughs> for Hellenists, you know, who come into town at the Jewish temple time and stuff like that. So, and again, this would not be for Hebrews. This is built for them. So we've got this natural tension that exists between the two. And this is going to carry over uh, when members of both groups become believers. I mean, they were, there was tension when they were Jews. But if some Hebrews become Jesus believers and some uh, Hellenists become Jesus believers, guess what? The tensions don't go away. They continue. Uh, the widows of one group are not being taken care of by the other group. So the question is, you know, where did this stuff come from? Uh, this is just a little side trip. Any of you recognize that picture? This is a, a site recently excavated, and uh, I think it's one of the great jewels of Israel, but very few guides take you there. This is Bethsaida, right there at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. There are, there's some evidence that uh, there may have been Hellenists among the original disciples of Jesus. Uh, this only shows up in the Gospel of John, but it shows up a couple of places. Um, we know, for example, that some of the disciples, at least three of them, in fact had Greek names which would be extremely unusual for a Palestinian Jew unless you were a Hellenist, okay? Peter. That's a Greek name, Petrus. Remember Petra? Philip. Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great. Andrew. These three come from the same town, which is the town of Bethsaida. They all three have Greek names. John 1.44. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and of Peter. Interesting that three of the disciples of Jesus have Greek names and in fact come to us from a town that we now know archaeologically had Greeks in it. Okay? When they excavated Bethsaida, what they found out is it's a mixed Jewish uh, and Gentile city. By the way, if you're a Jew... And the evidence indicates archaeologically there are Gentiles living in that town. If you're a Hebrew Jew, are you going to be there? No. If you're a Hellenistic Jew, familiar with living with Gentiles all across the empire, would it bother you? Not at all. So we have stone cups. Remember the significance of stone? Uh, in first century Judaism, if it's of stone, it's ritually pure because it's of stuff that God made. Okay. So when you find stone cups... That means we've got kosher, you know, practicing Jews. We also find pork bones. That's an interesting combination, yeah. <laughs> you know, which means you've got Gentiles. You've got Gentiles and Jews living with each other. And this is where Philip, where Peter and Andrew are from. This is where Jesus visits them over there. This may also explain another story in John. You remember this story? Now, among those who went up to worship at the temple, this is one of the hol holidays. John covers them all. Uh, you got you got people going up now if you're going up to the temple are you going to go up if you're a Gentile no you're a Jew among them were some Greeks Hellenists Greek Jews they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and said to him sir we wish to see Jesus remember that famous story isn't it interesting that some Greeks who want to see to Jesus go to the disciple of Jesus who's got a Greek name and comes from a city where Greeks live. No-brainer, okay? 
It's circumstantial, but, but there are scholars who say there's a really good chance that Peter and Philip and Andrew were in fact Hellenists. And why is it that Peter of the Twelve alone, alone of the Twelve, is reported to immediately leave Jerusalem and launch out to Caesarea, Maritima, and then out beyond that? It would make totally sense if he was a, 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 a Hellenist. The story of Pentecost tells us that the Hellenists were part of the church from the very beginning. Uh, you got verse 5 and then picking at verse 41. They're devout Jews of every nation living uh, in Jerusalem who welcomed the message and were baptized. Uh, I'm sure many of these went back out to Antioch, to Alexandria, maybe to Rome. We know there are Christians in Rome before Paul gets there. Where did they come from? Could have been from this period here. Uh, Jesus' tradition would have been expressed within Greek within weeks, not years. It would be very quick. Uh, the tension should not surprise us. Again, we did this in the, when we studied the, the book of Daniel. Uh, but going back to that early period, we'll skip over this. You've got it. But that's just another passage from Maccabees that tells the story of that. What's important for us is in the first century A.D., the tensions are still there. And if anything, they've gotten worse. So, it's, this is looking at Acts forward now. It is not accidental that it's the Hellenistic widows and they alone who are suffering. It is easy to see how Hebrews may not just have the Hellenistic widows on their radar screen. It is not an accident that it's a Hellenist, Stephen, who will precipitate the first major crisis in the faith. One that gets him summarily executed and that that crisis is going to focus on a criticism of the temple. It's not an accident that the first guy who leaves Jerusalem and takes the gospel to the larger world is in fact another Hellenist uh, by the name of Philip. It is not accidental that it's another Hellenist, uh, the most famous of them all, the Apostle Paul, who will then take the gospel to the edges of the empire. It is not surprising that this guy, Paul, will have a running battle for the next 30 years, documented in Acts and documented in Paul's letters with a group of people called the Hebrews in Acts. Paul refers to them as the brothers, okay, including the biological brother of Jesus. Remember him? James. You know, James the just. Just meaning he's ultra-Orthodox conservative Torah-observant Jew. Uh, so ironically, the solution to the crisis is, you would think, you know, just me, you'd think, what would be the solution to the Gentile widows being excluded? Include them. That is not the solution that the 12 come up with. Okay? We do our thing, you do your thing. We'll take care of our widows, you take care of your widows. They're not included, which is very, very revealing. Uh, solution comes from the Hebrews. They apparently don't want, that's one interpretation, they don't want the Hellenists included in the distribution, but there may be another one that's more practical. Remember the language difference? is going to result in different synagogues. Okay? This is what we know about the synagogue. The synagogue first started out as a social community center during the exile. It's where people met and do things. Out of that grows taking care of each other. So if you're going to organize support for the widows, where is the most natural place for that to take place? And if you're going to do that, you've got a Greek-speaking synagogue, 
you got a Hebrew-speaking synagogue, and if the, he- the Greek-speaking widows are not being taken care of, who should do that? It should be in-house. So that, that may be the explanation there. Likely the two groups, again, have different synagogues, uh, but they now also have different leadership. Up to this point, the apostles, the 12, Luke likes the number, the number 12, um, they're in charge of the Hebrew group, but now all of a sudden we have seven table waiters, seven deacons, and they are now going to run the show. And by the way, these are remarkable people. They do some remarkable things very quickly. Table waiter does sound like a put down, uh, especially since it's said by the Hebrews. And it's very clear in the passage, the apostles think this work is beneath them. What is their job? Preach and evangelize. Don't bother talking to me about setting up tables. Here's where it gets really interesting. Uh, The problem and the solution are in the same word, uh, diakona and diakoneo, uh, from which we get the word deacon, the deacon. So if the problem is the distribution, the solution is get distributors. You know, and this makes sense. Uh, it is interesting that the seven are elected as table weather, waiters, but if you read the rest of the book of Acts, there's a very peculiar thing. Not once, not once, is there a story of any of these seven ever waiting on a table. <laughs> not once. Is there a story of any of these seven taking care of the widows? They don't do it. Guess what they do? The very thing the twelve reserve for themselves. They immediately launch out preaching, proclaiming, spreading the gospel. Um, they simply not do that. And it's, it's just kind of an interesting part of that story. You just want to, Luke, there's a backstory here I would really love to hear, but it's simply not there. Uh, what is it that Stephen does? Immediately launches into preaching. What is it that, that Philip does? Immediately launches into spreading the gospel. You know. Then Luke drops the bombshell. A great many of the priests become obedient to the faith. Uh, and this is one of those places where Luke just gives us this wonderful insight into the Jerusalem church and... It's one of those keys that helps you unlock the rest of the book of Acts and the ministry of Paul. Um, the insight that this sort of, you know, sort of dominoes forward. Who are the priests? Well, A, they're employed by the temple. So you think they're going to be a little supportive of the temple? Okay, they are. They're supportive. Also, people who work in organized religion, for the most part, tend to be conservative. Uh, the status quo. They're not going to want to rock the boat. Uh, and here's what we know about the, the Hellenists. The Hellenists are boat rockers extraordinaire. What the rest of the book of Acts and the letters of Paul tell us is that it is the Hellenists who will come up with innovation after innovation, and they're not mild innovations. I mean, taking the gospel outside Judaism into the Gentile world, that's a biggie. Going to the Gentiles and saying, oh, by the way, you do not have to observe Torah. That's a biggie, you know. And it also just opens all kinds of doors <coughs> across the empire for people to come pouring into the faith. Um, the priests are comfortable. The fact that you've got priests, a large number of priests, who feel totally at home and totally comfortable being a Christian or being part of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem, gives you something about that community. They're not doing anything that's threatening to the status quo. 
the early Christian movement at this point is not doing anything that they would be that they would be uncomfortable with. Um, even the most conservative Jew, traditional Jew, Torah observant Jew, feels comfortable moving from Christianity or Judaism to Christianity, um, and that's kind of amazing. Mother Church in Jerusalem, as you roll forward in Acts, as you roll into the letters of Paul, it, you go back again and again and again and again. Mother Church Jerusalem is the source of all the conflict. Mother Church Jerusalem is the source of the anti-Paul movement. Mother Church in Jerusalem is the, the church that calls Antioch down and says, knock it off. You can't do what you're doing up there. And it makes sense with what, what Luke tells us. Um, James the Just and the brothers, this is their home base. We end with the speech. Next week we'll get to, uh, next, next week we'll get the speech. This is just, the arrest of, P, of uh, Stephen. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. So this Hellenist starts to proclaim, and immediately the conservative group says, whoa, not so fast, Stephen. And they challenge him. But they would not, uh, withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. He apparently was a force to be contended with. They had secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Flag those two. We've got two more to come. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. By the way, elders and scribes are both employees of the temple, unlike the Pharisees. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, brought him before the Sanhedrin, the council, which is made up of Sadducees, chief priests, high priests, all the temple people. They set up false witnesses who said this man never stopped saying things against, we had foot against Moses, against God, now we got against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and will change the customs that Moses handed to us. And that's probably the most significant charge. The people who run the temple, the priests, what's the last thing in the world they want? Change. What is the fear? He's going to change. What we know about the Hellenists, what did they do? They changed things. And so it's the, the, the just, justified. All who said the council looked intently at him. They saw his face that looked like an angel. And with that, we come to an end. He's, of course, seized. And then Luke will put on his lips this wonderful, wonderful speech. And we're going to take the entire next Sunday to look at that because it, it's full of all kinds of things. With that, we're out of time. So our closing hymn is? 571. Would you stand as we join together in 571?